0: There's muscle spar. I'm all off my calendaring. I don't know where the link was. I think I'm getting so used to
1: scheduling Zoom calls. It's just now in my nature. Like send the email, follow up with the calendar invite, put the Zoom information in the calendar invite. I always highlight the link because people can't find it. But we just, you missed the step because you're not used to looking. You don't need to look at your calendar right now.
0: I I don't have a calendar. I also ran out of pages of my notebook, my like spiral, this is my life, all of the information for care mm. and feeding of me is in it. Mm-hmm. I ran out of pages.
1: So now now we're really screwed.
0: So now I wander around aimlessly. There I've no I've no purpose or direction until I found some scrap paper in dad's desk and I took I don't know seven pages and stapled them together on the side to oh, make wow. a little notebook. And then I made a little calendar <laughs> for the week. Oh, wow! In my wow. notebook, this is like Great Depression era stuff. I'm like, oh, maybe I don't need a spiral notebook. No, spiral notebooks are definitely superior. If you're wondering. It's okay, fun. got it. You so- can't hold it. You can't put it back and. Yes, I thought about just clipping it together. I had it clipped together for a day or two, but then you got to take the clips off and then the pages. Got no, off. too much.
1: Uh, uh-uh. No, it's not the, not the same. Have you heard of Amazon? They, and like... <laughs> 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 what? There are these amazing <laughs> services where you like can type <laughs> in viral notebook and they will bring one to your door.
0: You know, I have... But my ethical struggle right now is like, are we supposed to be, are we supposed to be placing orders for, I mean, arguably, spiral notebooks are not dumb stuff for me. It's how I survive. So maybe I could say that's an essential product that I need. But like, I feel guilty ordering stuff from Amazon because then that just makes more work for the delivery people who are then exposed to all of our nonsense. Well, well that's I feel about that.
1: Well, that's one perspective. The second perspective is <laughs> it's employing people and people really need jobs right now. And hopefully, places like Amazon are providing safe work environments and have pretty strict rules. So, I don't mm-hmm. think it's the time to order like your unicorn pool floaty, but no. The other option is to support a small business. So, I've ordered a couple of things off of Etsy um, recently. So you could go in and I'm sure there's like some beautiful handmade journals, um, that you could look at. And then you're really supporting a small business, all of whom are hurting right now.
0: Um, that's a good idea.
1: So, and And I bet you could find something really beautiful. Yeah. We actually, this is so extreme, but now that we've converted part of our house into an office and I'm going to be in this room, for the foreseeable future, there were a couple of things that like we moved in. And when you move into a space, it's sort of like, we, we, we got like 95% of the way there, but this office space, it just like, it's not quite done. And it's, it's sort of been like, Oh, well, well, I'll get to organizing that I'll get to dealing with that. But now that I'm in here, like, okay, we really need, I really need to finish this up so that I enjoy being in this room. And the one thing that we really wanted was a side table for like our printer and extra printer paper and like all that. Oh, like, yeah, I remember stuff. Your, there's been a whole been debacle the with search. this search. Yes. Been on the search. And we did get one thing from basically goodwill. And then it turned out it was like totally moldy. And so it made us oh, look yeah. very, very sick. So we had to like get rid of that one. So, and I haven't wanted to buy something new, like from Ikea. Cause that feels wasteful. But I looked on Etsy and there's this amazing woodworker who's out of Oregon and he hand makes these gorgeous side tables. And so we have now purchased this beautiful wood and metal table that is being handcrafted in Oregon. And I found him via Etsy. So he's building our table. We'll send it to us, which, yeah, I recognize there's probably a bigger carbon footprint, but still it's going to be beautiful. And I'm really excited to support him and his. Handcrafted furniture, and then he sends you little instructions on how to put it together.
0: Oh, that's cool.
1: I'm very excited about it. And tell. we want a, <laughs> someday a matching bookshelf, and wow. he can he'll make that for us. Well, that's a cool story because that that'll be a continued relationship. That's right. His name is Ken. We've emailed a couple times. I think he's he sounds very nice.
0: Oh my god! So my new friend Ken,
1: thanks to. Etsy. Oh,
0: no, I'm excited. Yeah. I need, I need a, a beautiful journal maker, mm-hmm. something. Cause it really, it really is a problem. It is a problem. And we, we want you to stay organized and feel fulfilled and not lose the zoom link that I'm supposed to have. That's right. So
1: Farley, yeah. I have talked to you about my friend. I, I call him Dr. Pinto. His name is Rogerio Pinto. He and I met last summer at this awesome social work in the arts roundtable that was held on Bainbridge and outside. Oh, right.
0: Poor you. You I know, poor me.
1: Oh, gosh. It was like social work camp. It was glorious. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Social work camp.
0: Oh, man. He
1: and I just developed this awesome friendship, and he's been on my mind because he is a social work professor at the university of Michigan. Um, and of course like all faculty moving to virtual learning. Um, right, right. So his his life is kind of in transition. Um, but he just brings the biggest smile to my face. I'm not sure if it's because he is Brazilian and just is beautiful (laughs) (laughs) and his accent just makes me so happy. Um, or that he's just, you know, the most wonderful person. I think it's probably a combo. But in these, in these times, I've also been craving having a conversation not necessarily related to COVID. Of course, I want to address that that's going on in the world and we should talk about that. But he is an expert on the combination of social work and art. And he oh, cool. is a thespian and he is a playwright uh, and a social worker and I just love this topic so much that I thought we should talk to him today just to talk about something really cool and something really cool and different
0: yes the anti-virus conversation exactly so I think he's going to call in in just a little bit so excited to meet him good morning (gasps) listen to your beautiful voice good morning (laughs) good morning Dr. Pinto
2: good morning this is Farley how are you doing Farley
0: I am doing very well this morning I woke up and I knew we were going to talk to you and so I have a sense of purpose
2: (laughs) which I woke up you know (laughs) prepared to write uh, an NIH grant so I think I have a sense of purpose as well oh well that's a big
0: purpose yeah it's all it's all relative and i'll take i'll take what i can get but
2: it's it's like and now i mean i think you have better purpose uh than i did
0: (laughs) well it's a little higher than i've had recently as you may know i'm in quarantine in my parents basement this is day 10 of 14 so we're getting here
2: and that's because he went to new york right
0: Yeah, so we were in New York, and um, I conveniently left my job uh, two weeks ago on Monday. That was a planned thing before all this happened, Uh and my husband can work at home, so we thought um, it was wise to get out of New York while we could and because we could, so we Mm -hmm. drove to Virginia.
2: No, I think you did the right thing. I mean, people are trying to leave the place. I, I don't know if Catherine told you. I mean, I lived in New York for almost 30 years.
0: Oh, really? Oh, yeah. wow.
2: I I arrived in New York. And, well, maybe, I don't know if when we begin to take, to so, you know, I may be repeating things.
1: No, tell your whole... I, I gave her the preface of that you are amazing and that listening to you is one of my favorite things because <laughs> I love your voice so much. Um, I love how you say my name. You could just say it over and over.
2: Um, Catherine? Go on.
1: Please, jump right into your incredible
2: story. Well, I mean, I don't know incredible, but it's certainly Interesting. Uh, I think, Uh, well, so yes, I lived in New York for many years. I mean, I arrived in the United States. Uh, Actually, we've landed uh, in Orlando, Florida. And then, you know, a few days later, we came to New York City. And that's where I lived for many years uh, until I moved back here. Not back. I moved to Michigan uh, almost five years ago. Uh, So, I mean, the the idea of New York being a place that people are living because of COVID-19, Mm-hmm. um is is bizarre uh because it is a place of conversions right i mean that's the place that everybody goes to
0: it it is like new york becomes an entity itself it, individual a lot of individual people of course but but i i feel a uh... solidarity with it as an organism
2: it is an incredible place isn't it I mean I've traveled I mean not you know I don't know the entire globe but I've been to many places at this point in my life and I have not found anything uh like New York I mean including you know fabulous well-known places like
1: (laughs) you
2: know Paris and Rio de Janeiro and Sao Paulo even you know places in Brazil uh, where I was born and grew up. I mean, in, in London, I mean, I, you know, there's nothing like New York. I mean, it's not only the size of it. I mean, some places are actually bigger than New York city. Uh, but it just seems to be, like you said, Father, like an organism Mm -hmm. that has become really very well functioning. I mean, even in times like this, right. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, it happens to, 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 to come together very quickly and to do, what it's needed for its people. Uh, I was, you know, in New York f- for 9-11, uh, which is, oh, wow. uh, you know, yeah. something that we compare to, not in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, that they mean anything similar. I mean, right. you know, we are talking about very different things, but the the, 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 the tragic circumstances yeah. of 9-11 and the losses that we all experienced very close to home.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I can imagine and, that better mm-hmm. now.
2: Right, so that, that can be compared in some ways. Mm-hmm. Um, and 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 so, and we pulled together, I mean, we we had to, and and people came together, we we supported each other, and we did everything that we could possibly do. Uh, and so that a, f- a few years later, nothing went back to normal. Uh, mm. you know, New York City was one thing before 9 11, and another after 9 11. Mm. Oh, yes. I mean, you know, like, you know, people love to talk about New York as being unfriendly. Uh, You know, like, people love to say, like, people in New York are nasty. I mean, we do hear these things, right? Right. Uh, And, and (laughs) you know, under the circumstances of, and it's all false. Uh, Not because I, I, you know, I consider myself a New Yorker because I lived in there for the, you know, the bulk of my life. Yes, and and I find that, yes. And I find that curious. Uh, I really do. I find it curious because... Talking about a, like a, dif- a difficult place to navigate, 8 million people, right? Uh, one of the mm-hmm. biggest, you know, uh, subway systems, you know, in the planet. Uh, people living in buildings with hundreds and thousands of people, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and we managed to do all of these things really with very low crime, even when it's high, if you think about, you know, the size of the place. Right,
1: right. right.
2: per capita, yeah. Per capita, Mm-hmm. Uh, we, you know, people in New York manage to 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 take a train with again. You know, hundreds and hundreds of people, uh, sometimes in the same compartment. You know, the same car of the train, and everybody you know looks at each other. You say hello. I mean, you 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 can't be too friendly uh, in the sense where people are going to be having you know chats and conversations in the train station and on uh, and on the train because. It would just make it impossible for other people. So I think that at the end of the day, New Yorkers, are actually very uh, considerate. And yeah.
0: The adaptation to having so many people is that you don't look everybody in the eye because that would be so awkward. Like you, need, you, ha- you have to create the sense of privacy, even though there's That's 20 people. Point up in your grill, like up Mm -hmm. in your face. (laughs) So, (laughs) Don't engage with them because that's annoying. Because that's, yeah, some
1: some boundaries there. And I'll say, the couple of times I've been to New York, I have not experienced the like aggression or rudeness that people talk about. Mm -hmm. It's it's definitely a different vibe than, you know, where I grew up in Atlanta from living in Colorado, which is a whole different planet, kind of. And that you know, and then DC, there's sort of an efficiency in New York that I actually really appreciate. Like, okay, we're not going to dilly dally. We got to like, we got to do things, but thinking of these gazillion people living on a very small Island, like if you, if you had the same (laughs) attitude as like Coloradans have in New York, like the Island would sink. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't know what would happen. It just, it would, it would crumble. You know, you get very efficient in how you build and how you walk and how you exchange with people
2: and, and the efficiency i think gets confused as yes rudeness or yes as, exactly. you know, friendliness. Mm-hmm. but it is efficiency to you know to move people through the small spaces very quickly every single day 24 hours a day right you know so uh I mean, of course i'm getting misty-eyed here because you know talking about new york you know means so much to me and this morning uh, talking about sense of purpose, you know, going back to, uh, well, two things. So, because Folly asked me about the specific examples after 9 So, it's not that people changed, you know, the efficiency that we just talked about. But that was, um, I think what changed is that we we clearly felt more vulnerable. And that vulnerability mm-hmm. showed up in so many ways mm-hmm. um, in individual conversations, uh, in, in how we probably, you know, gazed at each other. Uh, It showed the vulnerability showed up in friends who began to think about their mortality in in ways Mm -hmm. that they'd never thought about before. I I think that American culture, uh, which is not, you know, as unique as we we like to think about sometimes, (laughs) uh, you know, (laughs) exceptional. Uh, I I think I mean, I think the idea of capitalism is um, is antithetical to the idea of mortality. So, be, because Ooh, everything wow. is about, you know, more and more, mm-hmm. right? And more also is more life, more years to right. live.
1: Yeah. And,
2: and so on and so forth. So, all of those things, I think, push us away from uh, thinking of, you know, death and dying. Uh, mm-hmm. And it creates, you know, the, the possibility of an enormous denial of something that is so natural, which is dying. Right. right. Uh, so I think times like this um, break that denial a little bit and we begin to talk differently.
1: I'm going to take this opportunity for, for a segue because I, I gave the premise that you and I met through our social work connection and and your work in the arts and that this combo is something that's a really uh magical combination of things social work and the arts and while it's a different conversation than what's going on with COVID this um idea that we're talking about with death and mortality, it reminds Mm. me of an amazing project that you're working on in the play that you've written. And I'd love for you to share with Farley about the play, but sort of about this social work in the arts world. Um, yeah. And what, what you're doing.
2: Oh, absolutely. Uh, it's, well, well, it's interesting. So here I am talking about death and dying. Uh, let's start the party. Uh, You know, it's... um... (laughs) Yeah, well, so, I mean, I have been exposed to death and dying very early. So um, it's not that it makes any easy for me to talk about it or even, you know, uh, fathom my own demise, right? But, I mean, being exposed at a young age, it does change how you feel about things. Uh, So what Catherine is talking about is my play by the name uh, Marilia, uh, Marilia is the name of my youngest, um, well, the youngest of five sisters. And I also have two brothers. And uh, so I'm the youngest of eight people, um, wow. eight, eight siblings. And, uh, and I was 10 months old when she died. And she was not even three years old.
0: Oh.
2: Uh, and so, and she died, you know, very uh, tragically in a mm-hmm. bus accident where the bus hit her and she died. Mm-hmm. Uh and it gets more complicated because um according to all the witnesses, and those are my sisters, my brothers who are all older than I was, but not that much older. You know, if you think about eight people, my oldest sister, when I was 10 months old, she was about 13 years old. Mm-hmm. Right? So these are not adults who have like a clear recollection of all the facts. Uh but anyway, the point is. I have been haunted by all the narratives of this Mm. extremely important moment in the family where one of the siblings uh, tragically dies. Um, And the bus that hit my sister was arriving um, in the place where we lived, which is a housing project, and it contained nine uh, buildings. So we lived on building number four. Uh, And the bus stopped between building four and building two. So according to many of the stories, and they all vary dramatically, uh, my sister was, you know, going across the street uh, because she had seen my mother on the bus from the window of the first floor, floor apartment where we lived. And so, and as she, you know, uh, launched into, you know, crossing the street to to get to my mother, that's when the accident happened. So it's an accident that actually includes my mother, who was mm-hmm. in, you know, on the bus, mm-hmm. and my, you know, uh, second youngest sister, who was accompanying my mother. And so you can only imagine uh, what that kind of witnessing can do to those two women, right? Mm-hmm. A child who was seven at the time, and my mother, who at the time... Uh, was 36, 37 years old. And, you know, the narratives that that happened, you know, after the fact. And so I grew up basically uh, conjuring up all kinds of ideas about what happened to my sister and how she looked before, how she looked after, and how she was buried. And so in some ways, uh, it could be a very morbid story, but it isn't because, uh, it is the curiosity of a little child who didn't quite understand the enormous loss.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: So um, so I feel that in some ways, uh, narrating the story and the questions that I had raised since I was a child uh, has become very comforting to me. So uh, that's how I came to write uh, the play and perform it in New York City uh, in 2015. And then again, in South Africa in 2016, uh, telling the story to very different uh, communities of people and being very touched by their responses to what I had to say. Uh, Because in many ways, uh, those kinds of losses and any kind of, you know, important losses in our lives sometimes get muted. They are not talked about because they, one, bring up a lot of feelings that we may want to avoid. Um, If the loss includes, you know, the death of a loved one, then, of course, it could be too painful to be thinking about or or, or talking about. And it could be losses of all kinds of things. But what the audiences keep telling me uh, when I perform the play and people who read it is that... um, It makes them think in a way that is not as threatening, where, you know, one can welcome the the, the thoughts and the feelings that losses can bring up, uh, so long as you can uh, create uh, a narrative that works for you, which is what I think the play does. Um, It is a narrative that works for me, that actually brings me hope. Uh, It's a narrative that brings me uh, comfort. I, I think and the audiences that's what they, they feel, and then begin to think about their own losses um, and finding some kind of place where they can go to where there is some uh some peace, uh, which is what I have been trying to to do my whole life but but then the, 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 the well it's not so interesting It's it's uh so between the ages of like zero and seven, um, a lot of important people actually died around me Uh, both my grandparents on my father's side uh, when I was born the two grandparents on my mother's side had already passed and um, my favorite uncle died Uh, again very tragically he was uh, he was shot Uh, he was shot dead uh, under you know very you know sh- shady uh, circumstances that I I still don't know what they are. That would be like a whole other play for one of his children to <laughs> to write. <laughs> <To> right. <write. laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know, but he was you know a favorite uncle, my mother's brother. Uh, and then uh, my my father died uh when I was about eight, seven and a half or so, and so all of those things create an impression on you you know that mortality is this reality it's this thing that can happen to you at any moment right um so i forgot what the, your initial question was catherine so well, i hope i got get it too morbid here
1: no not at not at all and and i'm you know i'm sensitive to certainly when when we publish this episode and people are Experiencing um, death either very directly with a loved one or just witnessing that many people are Mm. dying right now with with these very extraordinary circumstances, but that in order to process all of this death and loss that is happening around us, that 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 will be a, a profoundly critical Uh, process for for people to go through to to experience and and you have been able to use the arts particularly the the visual arts and and theatrical arts um to to explore that from your own story and one word you used when we were first talking about this was that this this project the writing of the play the performing of the play and now these kind of Um, additional iterations that are happening with the new set design and, Mm -hmm. and other performance opportunities is that you're excavating, you're excavating Mm -hmm. your own story. And by performing that for people, it's an Mm -hmm. invitation for them to excavate into their own lives. And so you have this um, discovery of, of what the stories are. And I was just uh, writing something about you know, what people might be going through with all of this and that we have the, you know, the well-known five stages of grief, but that this sixth stage of grief, um, can be meaning. And David mm-hmm. Kessler writes about this yes. mm-hmm. and that,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and and Farley, you and I have talked about mm-hmm. finding meaning and things and, mm-hmm. and it's, it's mm-hmm. not the, everything happens for a reason. I got it. That makes me just ill and thinking, how could I possibly say, oh, well, Marilia died for a reason. Like, Mm. no, I completely disagree with that. However, you have done the beautiful work of excavating meaning, excavating understanding with this situation. Um, And what a gift, what a gift to yourself and to participants of the project, and then, of course, the audience.
2: And, and I think, I mean, it, it invites people to do the same, right? So I, I was speaking, you know, more as a, as a professor, a teacher, and a researcher, and uh, why I use the term excavation, which is a little too pedagogical, but let's go there anyway. Uh,
1: you, know, <laughs> you are Dr. Pinto, <laughs> yes. in the end. <laughs> <laughs>
2: you know, I, I am not an anthropologist, but I have read a lot of anthropology and, and, and know a few things about that. Uh, and, and, and I'm a methodologist in many ways, right? And, you know, and one major methodology from, uh, anthropology is ethnographies, uh, and ethnographies can be, you know, very much, uh, a methodology to excavate, uh, of course you're not excavating fossils and, uh, and, and pottery and things, you know, in a site, but one can excavate one's own psychology in one's how, own life, right? How
0: do you do that? Can you talk about that method?
2: Yeah, So uh, the method of psychological excavation—I uh, mean, it's just the name that I'm using. I mean, so imagine that you are at a site, you know, anywhere, uh, you know, your backyard, and you, and you, you and you think that you will find, you know, some signs in the backyard that other people may have lived in there at another time, and uh, you know maybe like a long time ago or maybe not so long ago, right? And then you go through your backyard uh, and I'm actually looking at my backyard right now. (laughs) Uh, And so when we moved here, for the first time I'm living in a house. My entire life, I grew up in a very tiny apartment uh, in the building, you know, where, you know, right outside my leader, you know, uh, was killed. Uh, And then when I moved to New York City, I lived, you know, in apartment buildings in a very large city. The city I lived in Brazil, uh, Belo Horizonte, uh, in the state of Minas Gerais in the south, uh, the southeastern you know, part of Brazil, uh, the city has three million people. So it's a, you know, urban, very big city. So coming to Michigan four and a half years ago was a big surprise in terms of space <laughs> and having a backyard and all of those things. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but um I love nature. Uh, I, my first training actually is as a biologist and adored animals and, and plants and things, very curious about all those things. So it would be natural for me to go into my backyard and start to excavate to find out what's there. Uh, and interesting enough is that I found, you know, like uh, there was a path of stones that you could not necessarily see uh, when we just moved in. I found a lot of little toys from kids who had lived here, you know, for the past two years, right? Uh, There was like a lot of them, like little things, Uh, you know, plants that you could no longer see because there was too many weeds. So I'm just, you know, so that's how one would excavate, you know, very simple. uh, and, and, And so what I was doing as I began to do so was to understand who had been here before I had been here. Uh, and I found out that, for example, the path um, that you know, made out of stones that, you know, was no longer visible, uh, was put together by one of the men who lived in this house for, I think, like 30 years. Hmm. Uh, interesting enough, then I began to ask questions about all these things and found out that before David and I, my husband, we found out that the house had been inhabited for the past two years by a family of two, you know, two, uh, a man and a woman and their two children. But before that, the house had been inhabited by a gay couple, two men. You can only imagine, like, the big surprise because, you know, realtors are not going to tell you those kinds of things. They can't, right? <laughs> right. Uh, right, And so, like, here we move, you know, and so I'm, I'm excavating my, my, my backyard and actually finding, you know, signs of those people who have, you know, lived in here. Uh, and the kids, and so on, and so forth. And anyway, so I'm I'm just saying that to to, to make sure that we think of excavation. Um, it, it can happen everywhere. It doesn't have to be in Egypt, right, where we find people, <laughs> right, you know, right. And anything. Yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> so it is in the spirit of this kind of excavation that I just uh, talked about. That I also talk about psychological excavation. Uh, it is giving myself permission to go to the corners of my imagination in my brain and, and find out what has been there for a long time now. Uh, you know, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, how did I organize those things inside of my head? Uh, and how other people in my life had helped me organize those things inside of my head? Uh, and when I'm talking about here, you know, in calling them quote unquote things, is feelings, narratives, facts, how, you know, how, how do we store those things inside of one's head? And after that, you know, you've been living for a little while, you can actually go back and excavate those things. And as you find them again, uh, you begin to go around and ask questions as I did for my play. You know, I went to my mother when she was still alive and asked for questions. To my sisters and collected the narratives that they had, mm-hmm. and so um, so the, the, that's you know the 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 the, the most basic uh, excavation that I think all of us can do. Every human being can do that if they decide to do it. And then there is the manifestation of the excavation, which could be through a poem, it could be through a whole book, it could mm-hmm. be someone telling the story to a group of friends. Uh, So it it could be, you know, as simple as one wants it to be. uh, What I think is important at the end of the excavation is that you create a narrative uh, that makes sense to you. Mm. Uh, A narrative that is comforting. It's a narrative that uh, brings those things together and gives you some kind of peace. And -hmm. I think that that can happen at any moment in anybody's life. And then uh, there is perhaps... um, not so, well, it's a different method, but also a complementary method, which is go for therapy, meditation,
0: <laughs> right? <laughs> <laughs> <And> then,
2: <laughs> I mean, I've been in therapy my entire life, basically. That's the best. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and I think that that's another place where you can, uh, it's very helpful because the organization of all the things that have been stored in the mind. Yes. Um, so you have a space to do that with the help of someone who has a best interest at heart, right? And, and, and there is no end to it, right? Right. Um, right, I mean, the excavation can go on. I mean, whereas in, in, you know, if, you, if you think about it uh, in very concrete terms, eventually a site we'll get exhausted, right? I mean, there's just mm-hmm. so much I can do on my backyard or a site in Egypt <laughs> or any other place. Right. But the beautiful thing about psychological excavation, right, is that it has no end to it. I mean, you you, you can do this anytime, anywhere, your entire life. It's an enormous and beautiful resource that we have. Mm-hmm. Uh, painful at times, of course. Certainly. Uh, but enormously pleasurable you know, many times as well. And and then we can choose to 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 show other people uh, the manifestations of such excavation in many different ways. So like like we are talking about, like my play Marilia is but one moment of ex- excavation in my life, right? I'm, I'm working on two other plays that I'm writing, uh, two complementary but two different moments uh, in my life where I'm, I'm creating narrative of excavation of different issues around my life. And uh, one thing that I would like to share is that uh, I also decided to create uh, an art installation that will serve as a stage set for my play. And why I decided to do it is because, I, well, one, I felt that I was compelled to do it. Uh, but I also and and I, and I wanted to exercise some of my you know artistic abilities, mm-hmm. uh, which I felt you know a few years back uh, I was not at all engaged with things that I really feel I have the ability to do. Uh, I have been interested in painting a little bit of sculpture, sculpting, and but it's like day to day, you know, you're doing research and you you know teaching a class, you're doing this or, or, or something else. Uh, All those things become, uh, you know, secondary. And what I'm trying to do in my life right now is to bring those things to to the top. So uh, I was really very happy to start this process where I began to, uh, because Marilia is is a story that is told from the perspective of the immigrant. Uh, The person who left the country came to another country and had to uh, move through all the, the the beautiful things and also all the barriers uh, to establishing oneself um, in a country that as, uh, that politically particularly now is not very hospitable to anyone uh, who's coming from Latin America like I am uh, someone who has who's gay uh, someone who has so many of the identities that I have. Uh, but the, the difficulty is, is, is historic, right? I mean, it's constant. It just changes, you know, sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less. Um, but I, I, I think I'm saying all of those things because uh, it inspired me to concretize some of the excavation in terms of very specific objects, uh, which, you know, if we go back to the anthropological idea, would be artifacts that I'm finding along the way. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, inside of your head, you find, you know, the artifact, but it's not concrete. You have to create it if you want other people to see it, right? Or okay. you have mm-hmm. to describe it. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. in this particular case, I decided to create them. Mm-hmm. And I'm using the metaphor of suitcases as being uh, the key element of this installation. And the suitcases are representations of One, my sister's grave, Marina's grave in the cemetery. Mm. And all the other suitcases that I'm using for the installation uh, is other people who may be, you know, there with her in the cemetery or people who I talk about in the play. So the suitcases that I'm working on, they they portray in many ways some of the scenes of the play or some ideas um, that I had to confront while I was uh, creating the play. So I'm very happy to to report that many of those artifacts are ready to go. I don't know how many exactly, <laughs> but you know, uh, there are 35 suitcases in the whole installation.
1: And and remind us where all of those suitcases are right now.
2: In my studio, aka basement. <laughs> Uh, I hope it's gonna look you know beautiful and it's gonna be meaningful to people as well as much as the play you know uh, has appeared to be.
1: oh, I can guarantee farley oh i I have not seen the play I've seen a short video of a little bit about the the process of production, but then uh Ruggiero presented on this at a conference we were at not too long ago. And in talking to him afterwards, I started crying. Like the presentation on the play, which didn't include anything from
0: the play, just some pictures, um, was so moving that I lost my heart. Oh, gosh. So, um, of that, I mean,
1: we we know I like to cry, but if that's any indication.
0: inspired by your work and i've been having these little pings of um inspiration around creativity and storytelling and voice sort of my own voice but thinking about other people in the past i don't know year or so it's sort of the the theme of of my life right now Mm -hmm. um so that's that's one response that I have but another is about the methodological part of it so I did a little qualitative research in graduate school and Mm -hmm. I noticed your word manifestation which is you know what kind of report or play or lecture whatever you're going to do to reveal your research to people and so then I've been thinking about the the gift of seeing one's own psychological excavation as a sort of research project because Mm -hmm. it it distances one's psychological experience or the backyard from oneself Mm -hmm. even though it's one and the same but I think people including me resist that kind of excavation because you don't want to see what's there but another is that it it's it's within me it, it's so personal as to trigger self judgment and fear about what it might say about me, and so mm-hmm. if the the way you're talking about it makes it seem like you know my psychological experience, my psyche, my stories and records and narratives and feelings that are in my head are my are like my backyard, like it's over there. A little bit of distance that speaking out loud. Or writing sometimes provides. I found a mummy in my brain. <laughs> huh. Right,
1: and I that, wonder like, how that got there. <laughs> and it doesn't. It doesn't say, "Oh, I found a mummy, so I'm a good person or a bad person." Exactly. Sense. I just exactly. found a mummy.
0: That sort of non judgment, mm, um, curiosity, but like compassionate non judgment. Like mm-hmm. you were talking about the therapist. It's not like, "Oh, well, there's a mummy in my brain." But like, "Oh my gosh." I wonder how that's, you know, impacted my life negatively or positively to have a mummy in my brain. <laughs> I just, I just really like thinking about it in terms of methodology. And I do a lot of journaling or, you know, is it a therapy? Is there creative ways to, to say, um, you know, I know stuff is there, but how do I find it? I think some people might say, oh, like I'm fine. It's just like sand all the way down. There's nothing in my there's nothing to excavate <laughs> so, <laughs> or, you know, it's going to take five feet of excavation to get to something real. I think, um,
2: I don't know if everybody thinks that way, but I, you know, I do. And I think that a lot of people do, like when you think of like, for example, the excavation of the backyard or the excavation of, you know, some site in another country, right. Uh, for some reason, when you were talking, I, I was thinking, you know, we, we, we think we are going to go there to find all these things that people just naturally left, you know, they just went through their day to day and, you know, everything that is there to be found uh, were left in there in a very natural way. Maybe people, you know, who had put all these things, whatever they put, maybe there were some things that they were trying to hide. Maybe there are Mm. certain certain things that they don't want. Mm. They didn't want anybody to know. Or, you know, things that they... uh, So even though we may go to a site and we find a lot of things, uh, I think that we find things that the people who left them there did not necessarily want us to see. Mm -hmm. And why I am saying that is because the mind has really mysterious ways Mm. Uh, not so mysterious anymore, but I mean, mysterious ways of hiding things from us. Yes, mm. right. Uh, we know, for the example, very clearly that trauma right. makes the mind work in a way where it, it it really, you know, puts things in a corner where it's very hard to access. And then, I mean, you know, circumstances in our lives that are so painful uh, that the mind prefers not to reveal, right? Mm-hmm. Right, uh, And so I think that what we avoid, uh, you know, when we avoid the, the excavation, is to get to those places that I actually think, Farley, we already know a there. We know mm-hmm. the elements of it. We mm-hmm. know what, what it is. But what we do, we just keep away from it.
0: Mm-hmm. Don't and dig over there. Nothing to see there. Exactly.
2: <laughs> or, or we learn over time to minimize because a lot of the things that we try to hide inside of the mind or that the mind decides to hide from us, mm. a lot of those things uh, were not of our making. I mean, there were things done to us.
0: Right.
2: Mm. Or, 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 you know, of crap that happens around us, right? So I, I think at the end of the day, all I'm saying, you know, uh, it inspired me to think after what you said that um, we just have to go through those, you know, several feet of sand mm-hmm. in our own pace. Nobody mm-hmm. else can tell us, right, what the, the pace will be. And I think if we just, like, we start with, a, like, a nice, light brush
1: yes. and we to just,
2: you know, dust a little bit on the top, <laughs> it will become more and more curious to see what's, what's there, even though uh, for, for some time they have been hidden from us. I think. And that's what I think makes it a little less daunting than the idea of therapy, right? Right. Which I think is phenomenal, but it's also very costly and it's not available mm-hmm. to a lot of people. Actually, right. it's not available to most people. To most people. Yeah. Right. So, um, so for people who's, you know, for, for whom therapy is not a choice because they can't afford it, uh, I think that this also provides, you know, a nice way to to think about doing these things on one's own. It's it's you know it's it's available to all of us. Did you tell Farley that my nephew has the same name?
1: I didn't. I I, I remembered what? it when we got on the call, but yeah, we tell tell her.
2: Yes, yeah, so I was actually uh, a bit surprised when uh, Catherine told me that her sister Farley and you know it's interesting because names in Brazil, as in the, in the United States, they are very you know gender specific. But so Farley in 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 my mind has always been gendered as masculine because oh, the only Farley that I've ever known was my nephew. Uh,
0: that is so interesting because I haven't I haven't heard of very many people who are called Farley, even with the last name Farley, which is where my name came from. But one person said that she knew a boy, I'm pretty sure it was in Brazil, named Farley.
2: Uh-oh. That was <laughs> that a really, second. That's really funny. I mean, I have no idea how this name came about. And at some point, yeah. I, may, I may ask my brother and my sister-in-law, a former sister-in-law, I'm pretty sure she is the one who chose the name. So we um,
0: should excavate that. Like, well, how did just this did. happen? <laughs> <laughs> I have so many questions. <laughs>
2: so uh, in social work and, you know, all kinds of, you know, spiritual workshops and uh, undoing racism workshops, I mean, that kind of, you know, uh, very social work-based stuff. Many of those um, workshops to create awareness around diversity issues Uh, they sometimes can start with a question which is what's your name and what's your last name and tell us a story about the name and I think that 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 very simple exercise allows people who otherwise may be thinking of themselves without uh, a lot of you know ethnic identity uh, or ethnographic Identity to really bring it out because a lot of times, what you when people begin to think about their their names and how they got the names and how the last name got put together and all of those things, it really brings up a lot of the excavation of the family mm. itself. Mm-hmm.
0: Well.
1: <laughs> As we say in the therapy world, that's all the time we have for today.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm very happy that you, you know, you use the time, you know, by, you know, listening to me and asking me questions and uh, providing great uh, input.
1: Well, thank you so much for jumping on our call today. And (laughs) I'm I'm so glad you're in my life, Rogerio. I feel like it's such a gift. You are such a gift.
2: Well, and I feel the same about you. You, you know, it's uh, it's been quite incredible, and of course, like meeting Farley today uh, is quite nice.
1: Thank you so Thank you. much, Rogério, and we will we'll talk soon.
2: Absolutely.
1: Okay. Take care. Take care. Stay
2: you too. Bye-bye. Bye
0: bye. Bye.